Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hi, it's Adam. I wanted to give a contextual intro to the podcast today. It's a great interview with the owner of biodynamically certified J-Dirt Vineyards and Winery, Brooke Williams. He gives some incredible insights into biodynamics as well as some great ideas about the economics of owning a vineyard and running one. But the reason I wanted to give this intro is because the time in which we're currently living is extraordinary. As I post today's episode, the entire western half of the United States has been under a constant smoke blanket for an entire month. Longer than that, if you count the fires that erupted across the nation in our cities in response to the blatant racial injustice that people of color have continued to face without notice until this May. And now my sister in upstate New York has just let me know that they're experiencing hazy air as the immense amount of smoke and ash from the western fires has made its way across the entire continent. All this against the backdrop of a global pandemic, so we have more than one reason to wear a mask at all times. The reasons I started this podcast have never seemed more relevant. Our connection to the earth and to each other is being thrown or blown in our face. And yet, I'm not crazy about the news coverage. There is a constant sensationalizing and overhyping of every negative detail, clearly motivated by the need to keep viewers watching rather than give a rational big picture analysis. This coverage emotionalizes us, it scares us and angers us, and the result is that we feel powerless to do anything but keep watching the news, looking for someone or something to blame, and reposting. The truth is that each of us has more power than we think, yet the most important power we have is the one we seem to be most reluctant to use. That's the power we have over ourselves. We have the power to look closely at the beliefs and values we hold and the choices we make and to change them for the better. We become so overwhelmed by the scale of the negativity that we see this year that we may think our little individual choices don't matter. Our choices of where we shop, what we consume, or whether we vote. But all of those little individual choices by each of us multiplied by the hundreds of choices we make every day and compounded over thousands of days, literally create the world we live in. There is a lot more positivity and hope than the news would lead you to believe as well. I encourage everyone to take the time to seek it out. Spend at least as much time researching inspiring, brilliant, solution-bringing projects and work being done by amazing people as you do watching the news. My goal is to share some of that positivity with this podcast. Please don't lose hope. Don't let despair disempower you. Hey, I'm just a guy who loves wine and nature and people and who thinks it's redundant to say that because they're really all the same thing, connected, inextricably. But let me quote author Min Jin Lee, who says it a lot better than I can. She says, History has failed us, but no matter, serves as my thesis statement. I believe history has failed almost everybody who is ordinary in the world. It is not that historians aren't doing their jobs, but rather that the memory of history has been reconstructed by the elite, because the overwhelming majority of ordinary people rarely leave sufficient primary documents. They do not have others recording their lives in real time. The phrase, but no matter, is a statement of defiance. It doesn't matter that history has failed us because ordinary people have persisted anyway. This idea gives me an enormous amount of strength and hope as a writer because I am an ordinary person. Those of us who may be women of color, immigrants, or working class aren't often meant to be people who write novels about ideas, but no matter. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy this episode with Brooke Williams of J-Dirt Vineyards and Winery. First, let me just welcome you to the Organic Wine Podcast. Thanks for doing this, Brooke. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. And tell me about what you do with wine. Um, I don't do a lot with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the beauty of organic and biodynamic winemaking is you don't have a lot of things that you don't have a large toolbox, as it were, to manipulate or change the wine. A lot of what um, that comes from 
organic and biodynamic winemaking is done in the vineyard. You have to have really good product picked at the right time because you can't make all those adjustments at the winery. Uh, it's basically too late, uh, which then as a pri primarily a grower uh, or a wine grape grower that I am, um, it reflects better reflects the site, which, you know, why we're here and, and you know, trying to validate my existence as a grower um, and the uniqueness that is uh, my site. So tell me uh, about, I guess, your winery and your sites. The um, wineries I, is my friends, well, actually friends and one of my customers' wineries that um, we use. I, I have a small little uh, space that within that winery. Um, the sites, I have three or my family and I own three different winery, or vineyards. Um, two of them are right next to each other here in uh, outside of Lompoc in close to the Santa Rita Hills. We're actually west of Santa Rita Hills. Uh, one is a traditional vineyard that was planted in 2000, um, mostly to Pinot Noir, but a little Chardonnay, and it's called Duverita. Uh, recently, we bought the neighboring property and planted over there. Um, we're along the Highway 246 corridor, very sandy soils, and we planted a vineyard that was uh, modeled to be low inputs. So I went back and found a bunch of old viticulture books here in California from late 1800s and early 1900s and read those and it's like oh that makes a lot of sense we implemented those techniques which are uh, some own rooted vines head pruned uh, wider spacing we hope to at some point uh, get to dry farming we're not there wow. yet because the vines are still pretty young and that vineyard's called christian wise and then we have another vineyard up in edna valley uh, which is up near san luis obispo and it is about 40 acres, and it was planted as a biodynamic vineyard originally back in 06. We bought it from, it was Bob and Louisa Lindquist's vineyard, who own, or we're coupe. And then, uh, so we bought it in 2013, have been running it ever since. And that's mostly Syrah, and it's called Slide Hill. And all of the vineyards now are biodynamic certified vineyard. Got it. And... The name of your winery is J Dirt, right? Yeah, J Dirt is. Um, that's your. That's sort of your alter ego, right? Yeah, it was. It developed as a nickname. My daughter's nickname for me um, when she was in high school, and as I was the chef, and well, not chef, but I was the cook at home and the chauffeur. Um, and then when she went off to college, she goes, "Oh, Dad, you need a you know a street name, something cooler than just James as the butler." Um, so she got Jay dirt. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, let me, let's, and we'll, thank you for introducing your vineyards and everything. Let me just take a step back. And I, I think you have a, a bit of an unusual entree into being a wine grower. And I'd love to have you explain where, what your background is and how you got into this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, my original education was, uh, as an accountant and a CPA. So I got my CPA license and then um, got an accounting job. Uh, well, actually, before I worked, got into the wine business, I was uh, the controller at Heavenly Valley Ski Resort back in the 80s, which was fun. Uh, oh, but nice. in Tahoe, met my wife there. And then uh, we got into the wine business because I liked to drink wine. And um, I was an accountant, one of three accountants back in the late 80s at Gallo Winery in Modesto. Mm -hmm. um, so did a lot of things for them, did their taxes, did mergers and acquisitions, did financial analysis. I went to MBA, or they sent me to MBA school. They moved me to marketing, spent four years doing marketing for them, a lot of it international marketing. And then I did some sparkling wine marketing for them domestically. Um, then went up into Napa, worked for uh, Behringer Wine Estates at the time, um, did the marketing for them uh, with the on the Behringer brand. It was pretty exciting. Um, then, uh, had a short stint with South Corp at the time, which was, this was before the merger with Rosemont and before the merger back Behringer. Um, it was Penfolds and Lindemans basically. It was a VP of marketing for the Americas for South Corp. And then that was kind of a weird transition. They merged, management changed and it's like, I'm out of here. And, um, 
went on to uh, Kendall Jackson, and I was the VP of marketing for Kendall Jackson for a couple of years, then moved, uh, thought I wanted something different, wanted to get off the corporate wine world, and I got moved down to the Central Coast and became the CEO at Zaka Mesa Wine, where I spent nine years doing that, which was great because it was an estate-bound winery, uh, and I love Syrah, so that kind of worked out well. And then um, had an investment opportunity, and one of the vineyards looked interesting and um, decided to start my retirement with uh, <laughs> buying a vineyard, my retirement project. And one vineyard led to another vineyard, which then led to another vineyard. So, um, but I think I, with three vineyards, I think I'm, my retirement project is pretty full at this point. Yeah, you retired to more work and longer hours, right? Yes, but at least it, it is very fulfilling and very satisfying, <laughs> you know, having your own uh, projects to work on. And farming is such a long-term project that it's kind of, and it's fun. And it's every, it's challenging because every day is a new day. And just because it happened, you know, yesterday, it's going to be slightly different today. So it's mm. always something new. Yeah, that's what I like about it as well. And everything that you've talked about, I have a couple questions for you. You have an accounting background, and so you surely, your eyes are open about the economic realities of the wine business, and yet you decided to go into it. <laughs> did what, what it was, how did you justify that to your accountant brain? <laughs> it, um, the way I see it is the vineyards are almost like, um, on the financial side, are almost like a rental house where you can depreciate the vineyards and you have uh, potentially a, a positive cash flow with very low uh, taxable income. Mm -hmm. So uh, we bought real estate, which I think is strategically placed in good places and which just happened to have vineyards on top of them, which I love vineyards and I'm passionate about growing grapes, um, which then generates, you know, hopefully a, a small positive cash flow and very little taxable income. So it makes a nice, and hopefully you, you have the real estate appreciates over time. Right. Uh, so it's uh, that's my rationalization, my accounting hat. In that's the actually, yeah, that's actually really useful, I think, and helpful information for anybody that's thinking about it. It's, uh, there is a, a smart way to do it, even if it's a, a dream or something that somebody has, like me, for example, of owning a vineyard. I think being able to think of it the way you just described is uh, is very helpful um, because it, it is a tough business otherwise. Um, Absolutely. The other question, yeah, the other question I I had after you saying that was, you know, I you worked in a lot of essentially conventional large wineries, and yet you came to biodynamics. Why was that? Like, what what? turned you on to biodynamics you mentioned those books that you read but what specifically what i mean I'll, I'll i would love to hear what those books were but what specifically in the ideas that you were learning about turned you on to biodynamics uh, despite your background well the um i looked at it a little bit when when i was at zaka mesa and it really became a cost benefit uh, analysis at that point and i didn't understand enough about it um when we bought the uh, Slide Hill Vineyard in Edna Valley, it was already certified uh, biodynamic. And it's like, all right, let's see what this is about. And the um, and there's not a lot of certified uh, biodynamic vineyards in the area, maybe right. a handful. So I saw it as, okay, well, let's give it a shot. I don't know if I understand all of what it is, but it does make me or this vineyard relatively unique. So read right into it. And some of it is, I'm still either I don't understand or I don't care to understand, you know, uh -huh. um, but the more I learn about it, the better it feels. And it just feels like you're, instead of combating mother nature with um, sprays and trying to conquer her into your will, you work with mother nature and the things she provides like compost and um, there's a lot of medicinal you know plants out there that can help you um, with nutrients and specific remedies that you may need in the vineyard um, 
and you you work with her instead of working against her and it seems to be much more efficient very cost effective and it kind of works it's kind of fun to learn kind of it's almost you know traditional farming because the the old timers they they couldn't afford it or they didn't have resources that we do now with all these synthet- synthetic um, chemicals and applications that you have and it's funny too is the probably the the guys with the richest or the biggest trucks are the ones that are usually selling stuff to farmers, not the farmers themselves. I always found that interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that as well. Um, so what do you know about biodynamics now? I mean, what what is it? What is it? And I guess we'll give you the opportunity to... to distinguish it from organic for example so yeah to biodynamics is step one is being organic so and my best analogy or simplest way to start this is um like for us as humans eating well or organically would be basically the the baseline of being organic in the vineyard as well so you're you're feeding it correctly with no synthetic elements and and that Biodynamics takes it to the next level where um, us as humans would be like, well, not only are you eating right, but you're also going to the gym and working out and being healthy that way. So you're making things stronger in biodynamics. You're trying to um, make the plants stronger, make the soil stronger, uh, which then increases your resiliency, which also reduces um, you know, your demand for water. Uh, and other inputs, you've created a balanced ecosystem because nobody's out of place and you don't have as many then um, outbreaks because there's always a prey and predator relationship. You don't, you haven't killed all the predators um, of a certain class of within the ecosystem. So it doesn't break down. It continues to roll and then nothing, you know, raises its ugly head disease wise or pest wise. That isn't, you know, come into balance again. So biodynamics then also, uh, I was kind of, it has a lot of uh, astronomy to it to some extent. Or going to get uh, into that. Yeah. I, I feel like it gets dismissed sometimes because of, you know, what would be claims of non-scientific elements to it. How, how do yeah. you feel about those elements? I'm not there all the way, but I am definitely, the more I learn about it is the moon is more important than we think. Well, you think about, you know, plants and humans, we're about 60, 70% water. And if the moon can move tides, which are Mm -hmm. large bodies of water, why doesn't it have an impact on us and plants? So I am learning to do certain things during certain moon phases, um, which so far seem to be working. And it 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 actually puts you on a rhythm because the moon is every 28 days and it gets you into a nice cycle of, you know, every two weeks you do, you irrigate or every two weeks you spray. And it's kind of a natural cycle um, for us and in the vineyard to be working. So that's, that's kind of fun. I haven't got to all the celestial, you know, Saturn's in going, you know, what is it? Um, Mercury's in retrograde right now. And I, it's like, well, what's that mean? And I haven't got, you know, all the different constellations and, and that kind of thing figured out and how it does it impact us um, for vineyards as well. So, you know, for 20 year old plants or, or, you know, perennial plants, that's permanent plants that are here. the the planting calendar or a, you know, oh, these four days or this or that are not as important um, as if you're planting lettuce where you have a 90-day cycle lifespan of the lettuce. And right. if you don't plant it on the right day, you're you're going to be fighting. You're going to be off by five days. Right. could be a problem. But in a vineyard, it's not that big. A, it's not as big a deal. So it's not as important as um, other crops, maybe. Um, is, is there any aspect of the vineyard work that is that you i mean that you think is most affected that you know most sensitive to those cycles like you want to whether it's i don't know pruning or picking harvest is there any aspect of it that you think 
actually, I, you know, if I'm going to err on the side of biodynamics, this is the moment that I would do it. Right now, we try to coordinate pruning. So that is during the descending moon. So after the full moon, as it goes into new, where supposedly there's more pull to of the moon to um, into the earth. So then when we do prune the vines, we're not pruning a lot of the sap basically out of the vine because the sap is more into the roots at that point. Right. So then, um, so that's kind of the theory behind that. Um, we have a vineyard that I prune with two other guys. It's 30 acres and it takes us three months. So that's not really possible to do only, you know, during only prune during the descending moon. You still have to prune the vines when they're dormant. Right. And, and I don't trust other people to prune that vineyard at this point because they've proven they don't know exactly everything I want done or pruned correctly. So that's kind of our issue. You still have to be a good farmer in spite of the moon cycles. You still have right. to get stuff done. Um, right. But we have been doing also irrigating during the half moons. And um, that seems to be working. Uh, I think harvest is also can be on the right, you know, should be on. There's a series of, um, you know, they have the leaf day, the root day. I'm not sure how the they do the all day. that stuff, yeah. but I try to harvest on the fruit days. Right. Uh, but sometimes the winery can't always accept it and let, you know, logistically do that. Or I can't, you know, if everybody wants to prune on the same day or pick on the same day, I can't do that. I physically can't get that much fruit off the vine at the same day. So, um, we try to move things around. Plus, if there's like a heat wave or something that we try not to pick during the heat waves. Um, right. So it's there's you still have to be a good farmer. <laughs> and then ideally it works with the moon cycles, but sometimes you still have to do what you got to do. I'm, I'm getting pretty deep into the weeds here, but this question just occurred to me. I, you know, I know a lot of picking happens in California at night. So when does a moon day begin and end? Like if you're, do you know what I mean? Like if you're picking at 2 a.m., are you on the previous day's moon day or the following day's moon day? Well, it, it doesn't work that way. It's it's okay. um, it's like windows based on not only the moon, but all the other planets as well is okay. how they determine fruit days and root days and those kinds of things. I use a calendar. I, I can't figure it out myself. So I buy a, a biodynamic calendar and that helps me. Uh, when it comes to harvest there's also yeah, times that they talk about um you know if you're racking wine and stuff like that you could also integrate you know if you do a fruit day or a, yeah if you rack on a fruit day then you're kind of letting all your uh aromatics out supposedly so you might want to consider racking on a root day where things are kind of tight more more tight so you're not leave letting those you know aromatics out supposedly um, whether that's scientifically true or not, I'm not sure, but is it worth trying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've absolutely heard stories of people who did just, you know, sort of layperson tests of tasting wines on the various days and over, you know, a series of months or whatever, and and did come back and say, you know, they enjoyed the wine better on fruit days. <laughs> like, they, like it was, they're like, they were sort of stumped because they went in skeptically and kind of in a in an effort to disprove it. But they were like, I don't know if it's coincidence, but we did prefer the wines on fruit days. So, you know, there is, there's more and more s stories like that. The more I feel like the wider biodynamics gets out into the world. And and just going back to the full moon or the moon and its influence. I mean, I live in South Central Los Angeles and definitely on a full moon, I hear a lot more sirens and helicopters. And that's just anecdotal, but it does seem like it has an effect on. Yeah, um, I always I find it fascinating how words have developed in a lunatic. Yes, and Luna yeah. is the moon. So, yeah, the full moon would make people a little edgy, maybe. And have you ever done any other kind of viticulture i mean it sounds like you bought a biodynamic vineyard from the get-go so obviously you oversaw you at, at uh, zaka mesa we oversaw we grew anywhere from 150 to 180 acres uh right. more sustainably conventional um we were using roundup uh but otherwise mostly organic fungicides and things like that so softer 
fungicides as best we could. Um, did you? It wasn't organic. By any, did, we didn't recertify anything. I mean, do you have any evidence or, or even anecdotal thoughts about the comparison having gone from Zaka Mesa to your own biodynamic vineyards and differences, you know, in terms of improvements, I guess, is what I would be interested in, but also anything else too, if you, if things got worse in any way. Um, I guess anecdotally, the best ex, uh, description I've heard about that is from Steve Beckman, um, who's yeah. in our area and he grows biodynamically um, and has for several years or multiple years. And it's like taste wise and health wise, it's, it's biodynamics is just different. It just tastes different. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And I think what I'm, I want, I like wines. I like drinking wines that have character or, you know, have a soul to them. And I think a lot of the conventional farmed um, wines have some of their soul ripped out and don't show that character. Um, and soul could always be, you know, it just, you, you can tell and you cannot tell it. So it's, um, it's hard to describe, but it just has a, an energy or a soul to them. And that, that's the wines I like to drink. Do you, are you uh, certified? Is the winery certified? Or yes. Just the vineyards. The, the winery is also certified biodynamic. Correct. So how does that affect winemaking? I mean, I think, you know, we can get a sense of viticulture and what, you know, the viticultural practices, but what about in the winery? What do you have to do or not do? The main constraints is you're not allowed to adjust sugar levels or acid levels in the winery okay. so once you pick so you got to pick on the right days so that you right. i mean a lot of times in california um you're not allowed to add sugar but you are allowed to add acid um and other additives so that that's um an issue and then um or so you, you don't have that toolbox and right. then you also can only add up to 100 parts per million of so2 so you have to be and strategic you, about your additions if you're going to add any. Exactly. And you're not allowed to add any commercial yeasts. You're not yeah, allowed so all, to... All native indigenous fermentation. Exactly. Okay. Um, so what else is the... You and I can think... do a little cross-flow filter. Um, okay. Fining has to be done with organic eggs, but no other elements. You can't uh, use bentonite. They, they say you can still use bentonite, but I'm not a big fan of that. Exactly. But basically, the concept is to reflect the site. Oh, and no new oak. No, oak oh, no barrel, new, oak. new new oak barrels. Um, oh, yeah. So we use a lot, I mean, seven to 10 year old barrels. Um, I mean, the, the concept is that you, you in biodynamic winemaking is to reflect the sense of place, the site. So I think that's that's where no new oak and not a lot of manipulation and native yeasts and don't adjust acid and sugar. All those things come from. On your website, you use the term regenerative. And does that go above and beyond biodynamics? How do, how do you use that term? Regenerative ag is, um, yeah, it, it is becoming more of a force. Biodynamics concludes, includes a lot of it, but it doesn't... Um, I've gone to a couple of regenerative classes and uh, ag classes, and it's like, oh, okay, a lot more focus on soil, soil health than a lot of the biodynamic guidelines provide. So I kind of go the next level on soil health, biodiversity, um, those kinds of fun things. So it's uh -huh. been been interesting. I mean, they, they talk, you know, biodiversity. One of the things is most of the people, even in biodynamics, it's like, well, what's your cover crop blend? And it's like these two things. And it's like, no, I want like six to eight different species in my cover crop because that provides you diversity and uh, multiple diverse fuel or food sources for your biology and your soil. And I know some people traditionally, like it, when we were at Zaka Mesa, I'd plant grass in, you know, a tritocale or some grass species in one row and then alternate with a langum row, which would be bell beans and bees or something like that. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, your bacteria may not like the grass in one row. So you're just basically killed off. So you basically have a, you're almost creating monocultures of, of your biology. But in nature, monocultures don't exist. They're not resilient. So that's why you need the diversity to provide a diverse food, food source and habitat for 
multiple types of bugs and biology, fungi, and all those kinds of fun things. So that's what, to me, the regenerative part is more feeding the ecosystem and providing diversity, improving soil health, which goes above and beyond the standards of biodynamics. It works into the biodynamic standards, but it they're not as required and they're not as detailed as because farming's hard (laughs) yeah well and that was going to be my question there are things that are required to be biodynamic certified and then it sounds like you're also doing some things above and beyond what's required like cover cropping i I take is not required it's Um, encouraged it's encouraged and what about no-till or are you are you tilling or exactly and we've reduced our tillage a ton and granted we have some weeds and weeds are fine weeds are your friend um so we're yeah reducing tillage uh is a big part of it and so we don't disc i'm basically selling my discs um we do have chisels and things like that that are um just open the dirt they don't turn the dirt or anything like that um they're more for killing gophers than anything. Else. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we don't do any under till, under vine tillage. We've done, I've been buying weed whackers instead and just using that to trim the weeds underneath the vines. Um, right. Looking at more permanent uh, or perennial cover crops um, that you can just, that will choke out a lot of the weeds. So we're transitioning from that into, or transitioning to more, uh, perennials that come up every year and will choke out the weeds. But in the meantime, we have weeds. Well, speaking of gophers, um, when I visited, you pointed out your raptor nesting boxes. I think Is that your only method of controlling the gophers uh, from a biodynamic standpoint, uh, like a holistic approach like that? That and um, we do, oh, I mean, I have basically a, almost a full-time guy here doing gopher trapping. Okay, um, got it. We also have, I know, I don't fill in any of the holes underneath the uh, deer fence where the coyotes come in, the bobcats come in. and Oh, there you go, yeah. That kind of thing, we um, we encourage. We got garter snakes, right. we got gopher snakes uh, running all over the place. Um, so we, and that's kind of, but with, with predators you also have, or with prey you have predators. So that's the, the best we can do. Um, right. At this point, we do, yeah, owl boxes, you encourage that. And I think by not tilling as much, the snakes are here. Um, you also provide, I mean, the downside is you provide um, more habitat and cover for gophers and voles and things like that. So right. you gotta, that's probably the, the biggest downside. But they're also good soil conditioners. So if you think about, you know, gophers actually turn the soil in the top, you know, foot and a half of the soil. They aerate it. Um, so they're not all bad as long as they don't eat your roots or the roots right. you want. And that's some of the reasons that, you know, we have some of these big old mustard plants here and they got a nice tap root that's nice and juicy that the gophers can chew on instead of well, hopefully get, you know, they get distracted from, from the vines. They have other things to eat now besides the vine roots. So hopefully that's that. working too, but tell you in a couple of years. <laughs> um, I I love that sort of balance that you, the idea is what I'm hearing is, you know, striving for a natural balance of things to take care of themselves, ultimately, um, less input from you and a more natural, like you said, working with mother nature. Um, exactly. I, have you, do you think that works in, in any uh, vineyard situation? And, and maybe I'd, I'd follow that question up with, you know, what kind of person do you need to be to, to make, to be successful in biodynamic viticulture? You need to be patient and you, a lot of, you have to get over the hump that it looks pretty. You know, we have this concept of, you know, some of the super manic, manicured vineyards where everything's in, you know, tucked up nicely and everything's hedged and that kind of thing. You have to be, you have to accept the mess. A little bit right and and most of my buyers get it and yeah. they don't have to have you know a vineyard is is not an english garden where everything is perfectly laid out um nature doesn't work that way um and for nature to work it has to be a little wild um so i think that's the biggest uh hurdle 
a lot of people have. It's like, oh, it's pretty. And I know I, I look back and I, I, you know, I, I'm tucking shoots or whatever. And it's like, wow, look, it looks so pretty right now. Or, you know, when all the weeds are gone and it's like, oh, it looks pretty. And it's like, yeah, but the weeds will be back real soon. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, the Duverita Vineyard has a unique, um, the vines are trained in a unique way. Can you talk a little bit about that and why they are like that? There's probably multiple reasons. Um, just to start with, our spacing is seven foot rows and then three feet between vines within the rows. So they're relatively tight spacing that gets you a, almost 2,100 vines an acre. Um, we're in a cool site that's relatively windy, uh, and it's the soil is very sandy. Uh, sand has a lot of air in it. Uh, it drains very well, which is why vines like it. Um, right. Air provides fuel for a lot of the biology to eat lots of fun things down below. So we continue to feed the fun things down below. The uh, vines are uh, pruned in a what they call a double guillot fashion. And guillot is a French name or a French surname for the guy that started this technique, which is basically it's a trunk with two canes coming off, two short canes coming off each side. Um, and the canes are just one-year-old wood. And then what the theory is, you have um, less cuts onto the, the trunk or to the head of the vine, um, less places, less wounds, less uh, infection or points of infe infection for bacteria and diseases to get into your vine. They're also relatively low to the ground. Um, Very low. I mean, like yeah, exactly. We're about eighteen inches. The, the top of the head of the vines are about eighteen inches off the ground. Yeah. Um, part of that is to uh, get out of the wind as best we can, and then also to get a lot of the. Um, radiant heat off the floor of the vineyard uh, so you because get... it is cool i mean it's it's remarkable to think that you're west of the santa rita hills which i think most people know of as you know the westernmost ava <laughs> closest you know heading out to the ocean but then then you're beyond that so it's yeah. i remember as we were standing there in full sun i was getting chilly just from the breeze a, you know just a constant you know, chilly breeze coming straight off the ocean. Yeah, and the Pacific Ocean is really cold right there too. At that yeah. point, before it turns um, into like Santa Barbara, where you have the South Coast, so we get a cold ocean. Um, the breeze we have east-west valleys, so the ocean is unobstructed, or the ocean breeze is unobstructed on the way here. Um, right. And we're about ten miles from the ocean, and it it yeah, the sun is warm, but the cool the breeze is cool. We've had a handful of days over 80 degrees so far this year and it, what, in mid-July. So, <laughs> right. uh, we've I had maybe two days that hit 90 degrees so far. Uh, How are your grapes doing there in that vineyard? What, what stage are they in? We are getting to what they call um, cluster closure. So okay. they're swelling up and I have, I've seen one bunch that have started to change color on the Pinot Noir. Oh, uh, wow. So we're probably Verasians a week to two away. We, typically here we get uh, Pinot starts to change color mid to late July. Syrah, have, we have a little Syrah at the top of the hill, which will start going through Verasion in mid to late August. So, just, just a fun little thing. We have a little front yard vineyard. We have Syrah vines that are completely through Verasion already here. And then I have some Pinot in the backyard that are just starting. And it's like, do you guys, I, I don't know if it's the microclimates difference between the front yard and the backyard or what, but it completely flips what you'd expect. On a yeah. We, yeah. We're, we pick Pinot like, well, we pick Syrah like a month to six weeks after we finish with Pinot Noir here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's normal. I don't know what's wrong with me here, but <laughs> <laughs> Southern California, I don't know. Um, yeah. Los it could Angeles, be exposure. Yeah. Uh, could be too. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. But um, I, the other thing, there, one other thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, are we doing okay for time? I just want to check in with you. Do you need to? Yeah. Okay, great. Just a couple more questions. Um, one of the things that I noticed on your website was you mentioned sustainability and 
I know that that word is used in a lot of ways that makes it meaningless, but there is also a sustainable certification. There are things that make it a lot more meaningful in terms of business practices. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about how you guys are operating sustainably. And I'd love you to talk about what that means for the vineyard worker treatment and their, you know, any benefits that they receive or any, you know, just the way that it impacts the the people who actually work with the grapes. Yeah. Um, sustainable. First off, we're not certified sustainable. Um, okay. I haven't gone there yet. I got the biodynamic certification seems to be daunting enough. <laughs> um, would you recommend it to anybody? I mean, would you recommend biodynamic? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think once you get the theory, I think it's kind of interesting to, to do. Um, when it get, comes back to, you know, sustainability, um, I, ha- I read a great quote is, well, if if our current system's broken, why do we want to sustain it? Um, so that, that gets me to the more regenerative side of things, when at least when it comes to agriculture. Um, part of the sustainability certification requires, or yeah, requires um, a look at the, how you do business as well as what you do. So right. um, that's where the employees, you talked about employees and their benefits, those kinds of fun things. We have two, I have two employees um, and then our labor force is complemented by contract labor um, force as well to do, right. you know, a lot of the heavy lifting and that kind of, um, but my two, two guys, um, I'm working on actually providing them health benefits, uh, actually starting this year, um, working on that working on a 401k plan for them as well, even though I only have two employees. So none of that is required until you hit like 25 employees or, or five employees, depending on what you're talking about and the size of the companies and all those kinds of fun things. So right. we are trying to provide um, them better resources. Um, and a lot of them, I mean, they're a couple college grads, which are great, um, but they, they need a career path as well. And they need to make sure that they do, you know, they provide for themselves and take care of themselves. So that we right. encourage to do that. Encourage um, education as well. Uh, one's, one of my guys has gotten his PCA license. Uh, so that's great. Uh, helps out a lot. So, yeah, it, we encourage our employees to continue to ask questions. And they're a team. So I try to treat them as best I can. So I just want to go into, I guess, the, the closing questions, we'll call them. What big ideas are you wrestling with these days? Like what's been fascinating you and, you know, what have you been geeking out about? Yeah. Um, I've been reading a lot about, you know, just the soil health. I'm reading a book now about you know, carbon farming and um, how do you carbon is it's free, um, but it provides a wealth for plants and your, your land. So um, it's this thing called, you know, green plants create carbohydrates from the sun and free and right. it kills me that you know my neighbor has his field bare for six months out of the year meanwhile he's you know driving a tractor keeping the weeds down um during that six months and it's like you don't get it you don't get where photosynthesis creates carbon and sticks it in the ground <laughs> and why not use that and and some of it is too is you know as a vineyard owner um the vines are green, yes, but then you have all your rows, you know, barren. And it's like, well, why would you do that? Um, we have opportunities to, you know, sequester tons of carbon and provide, and that carbon, those carbohydrates, um, provide food for the biology and, and which, I, you know, bacterium and fungi in your soil, which then feed the plants. You can't just, right. I mean, what people forget just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, and that's the thing that I've been geeking out is, is about the biology, protecting the biology and the fungi. And then that requires them to have food. Food requires photosynthesis and the mystery of nature. (laughs) Have you looked into buying carbon credits or, you know, trying to get carbon neutral being, so you can say that, the winery or the vineyards are carbon neutral or anything like that? I have not. No. Okay. I, I know curious. there's, I mean, and I'm one of those where um, 
I'm going to do the right thing no matter what. And a lot of people send me, oh, you should apply for this grant or that grant. And it's like, you know what? I don't take handouts. I don't, I don't do that. Uh, one, I don't, I don't want to do the paperwork for it to start right. with. And, and if Busy I'm, enough. yeah. And, and I want to be out in the field. I don't want to be doing paperwork. So right. I think, it, you know, I do the right thing the first time or try to at least. Um, and, you know, some of the grants, oh, you know, what new steps have you done? And it's like, well, I do them anyways. So why, you know, let somebody else take the money? I don't know. I'll do it and figure out a cheap way to do it and or an inexpensive way or a way that has a high return on investment and um, figure it out myself. There's a couple books that you've talked about. Can you give names of books or any other resources that have been, you know, inspiration, education, great resources for you? in terms of getting to where you are with biodynamics? Yeah, this sequence started where I went to the biodynamic wine seminar or conference in San Francisco would probably two, three years ago now. Um, and I heard a guy speak, uh, David Montgomery, um, which was, he's a geologist. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I was just listening to a podcast with him this morning. Uh, and he wrote Dirt, yeah. Dirt, he, or the movie he wrote Dirt. Civilization, right? Um, was it? Yeah, it's dirt, the erosion, erosion of civilization. So that got me going. And then I read all his other books. He's got two other ones. One he co-wrote with his wife, um, The Hidden Half of Nature, and then the other, uh, Regenerative Ag. And okay. then um, from there, I read uh, Gabe Brown's book that came out, I think, last fall, maybe two falls ago now, um, Dirt to Soil. And that's that was a great book, and that got me into the more of the regenerative ag side of things. Um, uh-huh. And now I'm reading uh, carbon farming um, and a bunch of other things too. I couldn't remember all of them. Um, oh, what scared the hell out of me too was if Cadillac Desert. Have you read that about no. California water? It's about 20 years old uh, book, but I think it's still applicable today. Um, there's also um, the West Without Water, which is kind of the continuation of the Cadillac Desert, um, dealing with just your water resources here on the West, um, and more of a historical preference or long-term climate um, forecasting, which I thought was kind of yeah. scary and cool at the same time. Yeah, so since you brought it up, maybe this will be a, a good closing thing. What what do you see as the future, especially of viticulture in California, especially the Central Coast there? Um I mean, I know we just came out of a, a pretty long and severe drought. What What are your thoughts about looking ahead, and if more of that comes, and you know, are you optimistic, or how do you think we'll need to adapt our viticulture, and where do you see us heading? Yeah, I I think there's a couple of different factors going. Well, there's three big factors going on. One is, yeah, resources are going to become constrained. Uh, both water and labor. Those are also the two most expensive things we probably have here in the state to deal with. Um, and that's why I planted the vineyard next door to Duverita in more of that low input method, because I want that vineyard to last 100 years, uh, right. not be a burden to my kids or my next generation that takes it over. So um, that's kind of where we went back to the future kind of thing is look back to when there wasn't a lot of labor. wasn't a lot of synthetic chemicals. There wasn't a lot of tractors work and you know per, uh, petroleum-based power, so that you can try to farm with low inputs. Um, the other thing going on, especially in our location, the climate change, and right. we are on the coast, and I think we will get more wind, and right. we will end up being, I think, colder as the interior of california becomes hotter more wind so hot air rises pulls, uh, the air. pulls the air in from the coast so we're going to get windier so i planted varieties that are more wind tolerant and drought tolerant uh, because of that in certain right. locations even though most people would say oh you'll never ripen that up in your climate but it's like well you know i planted a um Right next to Santa Rita Hills, which is supposedly Pinot Noir country, I planted some Pinot and I put Syrah right next to it. The Syrah is doing well. Grenache is doing well there too. But the Pinot is getting beat to crap because of the wind. Yeah. It's like, well, 
that doesn't make sense. Why would, you know, why would you plant more Pinot here? Right. So um, it doesn't do well. <laughs> so I, that's, I'm planting their own varieties. And um, so that's kind of the, the factors I'm seeing. And even here with, you know, a 20 year old vineyard here at Duverita with a lot of Pinot on it, we've kind of, you've got to, um, you know, we've got windbreaks up that have been planted, you know, 20 years ago. So there's protecting the Pinot. There's a lot of extra things you have to do to plant Pinot Noir and for it to survive. I imagine, you know, it's like east facing slopes where it's protected from the west by the, you know, the brunt of the wind might be a good thing as well. Exactly. Okay, great. Well, Brooke, thanks so much for doing this. How can people get in touch with you or find out more about Jay Dirt and what, what's going on with what you're doing? You know, conveniently, we have a website that you mentioned a couple of times, jdirtwines.com. Um, and it has the, the vineyards there and um, they can, you know, we do give vineyard tours, get people out in fresh air uh, at a social distancing, of course, and with masks and all those kinds of fun things. So um, I took one of those tours. I can highly recommend it. So that's all fun. Um, so and then keep reading books and um there's lots of regenerative ag books out there, and and uh, and I think the one of the big pieces of advice is just because somebody does it doesn't mean it's right, <laughs> or <laughs> somebody great. tells you, you know, it's a conventional thinking, like, oh, we did the last year, do it again. It's like, no, don't do it again. I question everything. Exactly. That's great. Well, thank you again. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Appreciate well, your pleasure. time, and look forward to seeing what your wines coming up will be like can't wait yeah. to taste more well thank you appreciate it